I wonder how many people have any idea what those words mean. I'm free from Satan's bond. Now, there's a lot of people in bondage that don't know they're in bondage. And there's a few people that are free that really know they're free. And there's no such a thing as knowing, as not knowing that you're free when you are free because you've been there. But there's an awful lot of people in bondage that have no idea that they're in bondage and they think they're the freest people in the world. But that's for another place and another time. Let's turn to John 17. And we will indelibly impress these same verses upon our hearts and minds. We read this enough and this will become our chapter. No matter how old or to what parts of the country we go to, John 17 will stand out as a highlight in our life because we have gone over it and over and over it. And it hasn't gotten old, has it? Does it ever get old to you when the Lord says, like in verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. Here we are, we're in the world. You know, just like the disciples were. He did not pray the Father, well, the Father wants to save them and then take them out immediately because the world is such a terrible place to live. But he says, I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil or the evil one. And it's God's keeping power is just as great as his saving power. If there wasn't a keeping power involved, we'd be of all men most miserable. Paul said if it wasn't for the resurrection, we'd be of all men most miserable. Very true. But if God just saved us and left us alone in this world, we would be in one terrible fix. So let's read, uh, oh, verse, we start with verse 14 and read down through 20 again. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. He noticed that he not only keeps us in the world, but now we're sent into the world. There's a mission to be accomplished. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Now that sanctifying that Christ did of himself is something that when we get into that lesson, it's going to be an eye-opener. Him setting himself apart for our sanctification. And that setting apart was from completely from the world. He lived sinless in the world his whole life. That was just a part of it. That's just one of the very, very impossible things even to our imagination of something that could be accomplished, but that was part of his sanctification. That was God setting him apart and him setting himself apart 
Uh, that's going to be a, a wonderful lesson when we get there. And then neither, in verse 20, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. And that's where we enter in, where there's a, a promise, where there's hope, where that doesn't make this book just something that happened in the past. It brings it right up to the present. I pray for them also, for us. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank thee again for the reading of thy word. We are never, never, never tired or bored by reading the wonderful words that thou hast given unto us over and over again. We marvel at the fact that thou hast said that we're not part of the world as thou wast not part of the world. We marvel at the fact that thou hast set us apart, that there's been a work done in the hearts of this people. Not very many. Not very many at all. But it's such a wonderful, wonderful thing to be touched by the God of all creation. The God who made heavens and the earth, who wrote this history book, history of mankind, history of the nation of Israel, the history of redemption. It's his story, the whole thing. And yet he takes time to visit an individual who has nothing, nothing at all to glorify him with, nothing at all to offer, nothing within the recesses of the heart. He touches that individual's heart, leads them gently to a knowledge of themselves and a knowledge of Christ, and reveals himself to their heart and gives them the hope of all eternity and the wonderful promises that stagger the imagination all to a sinner from love to from love from his God we ask this morning that thou will bless this lesson to the few that are here this morning to the few that will hear on the tapes to the few that will receive the tapes or hear the message somehow we pray that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be lifted up glorified and honored we pray in his name amen Well, for the last few weeks, we have got to verse 17 where it says, Thy word is truth. Of course, we could just pass over that with the reading, but we wanted to hesitate there for a couple of weeks and talk about some of the things that the world calls truth and then things that we call truth according to God's word. I also want you to realize that Practically, every false religion in the world, except those that, you know, are, are Buddhist and Mohammedan, I've been talking about denominations and people that come under, the, come under the title of Christianity. They all derive their false doctrine from God's Word. They take one part of it, major on it, change it, amplify it, belittle it, exclude all others and you have a denomination you have a proud little people they don't belong to it that's it one church or the other they all uh, put themselves at the top of the heap and therefore arises many of these little expressions and sayings that we've been talking about week after week you remember when we talked about the one that somebody says there is no hell 
and they're so demanding and forceful about it that they'll go down every street and every block and everybody's neighborhood and ring your doorbell, knock on your door, and give you a little pamphlet or piece of paper that inside it somewhere it'll say there is no hell. Well, we talked about that, and we know. We know from God's word that there is a hell. And every sinner that God ever saves know that there's a hell within his own bosom. And the Lord delivers from that, and he delivers from a literal fiery burning hell that in time will be delivered into a lake of fire, which is really the hell that they're talking about. And another thing we talked about was that God loves everybody. And this is the main theme of mankind, that everybody's created equal. And you know, that's crazy. We didn't even talk about that one, but you ever hear, everybody's created equal? No, they're not. There's people born without legs and without arms and without eyes, and there's people born with diseases in them already. There's people born in very, very terribly poor sections of the country. There's people born in tribes in Africa. There's people born in the jungles of Central America. And then there's people born in the suburbs of New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, New Orleans, uh, in Homa, that have very, very comfortable living and and their parents have nice jobs and they have plenty of money and they never go without a meal. They have fancy clothes. They can do just about anything they want to as far as the pleasures of this world. How do you say that everybody's born equal? But this is the theme of all your get-together religions today and your do-gooders. Is everybody's born equal? No, they're not. But if we are born even healthy and have a mind and uh, and an intent for, for heaven and the things of eternity, you are very, very rich. You've been born rich because it's from the riches of heaven that we're drawing our, our wealth. Another one of the things that was mentioned is it's okay for women to preach, and we talked about that. We read from the scriptures, I said, there to keep silence in the congregation. How much clearer can God ever express it to people? Another one was that Christ is just a spirit. No, he isn't. The Bible says he's the man, Christ Jesus. Acts shows us how he went back to heaven in a body. It says, as you have seen him go into heaven, so shall he so come in like manner. Not a spirit. He's the God-man. He's the mediator. We're not spirits, so he can't be a spirit to be a mediator between us because we are people. And the mediator has to be a people. Another one we talked about is God has added to his book. No, he didn't. He hasn't added to the book at all. People have added and people have changed. He didn't. Another thing is, is that it's okay to pray to the saints and to pray to Mary. Well, we tried to find Mary's name somewhere in the Bible after the resurrection, and we hadn't. We just didn't find it. We didn't find any instructions from any of the apostles to ever pray to any saint. It's not in the Word. God never intended it to be that way. And Paul and Peter and those were horrified when somebody would try to make a God out of them or try to deify them in some way or even to to honor them to the degree of, of kneeling at their feet. They were horrified. There's no mention of any Mary or saints of any kind whatsoever in the scriptures. 
That's why their hatred is of the word. You know, the Lord says, I've given them thy word, and the world have hated them. And that means all the religions that are in this world, too. There's another saying that we talked about. There's a little bit of good in everybody. Oh, we had fun with that one, didn't we? Because the Bible is so clear. Saying that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. James tells us if you've offended in just one point. Say you kept nine of the commandments, which would have been a great feat, a wonderful feat if you could keep nine. But say perchance you, you messed up just a little bit with number one. Number one happens to say, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That you should love the Lord thy God with all your heart and all your mind. Say you just messed up there just one time. You know what that means? That means you broke all ten. That means you done ruined it. That means you need a substitute. And that's why the law is given. Not for you to keep it, but for you to realize you need a substitute. And in God's word, shows you who that substitute is. Isn't that simple? That's why God's word is here. That's why the law is here, as a schoolmaster, to lead you, to point you, to teach you about Christ. Another expression we talked about was one religion is as good as any other one, as long as you worship God. Remember when we passed over that one? I gave you the expression of... Uh, Oriental over there in Okinawa, a friend of mine, a doctor, having a good talk as we sat on the floor eating. The floors are so clean, the houses are so super clean that you spread a little cloth on the floor and you sit around the floor and eat with your legs folded. Well, I have a terrible time with that now because my left knee don't want to fold. I'd look like a, a wounded chicken trying to eat now. But we all sat around with our legs folded and he was telling me that we all worship the same God. Except that we're going up a mountain and they're going up one side and we're going up the other side and when we all get to the top, it's all glory. Sorry. Sorry, it's just not like That's a good picture. You know, that, I guess that's their, that's their Roman road. That's their road to salvation. It's as simple as that. That's their free will. Just go up the mountain, get to the top, and you've made it. One little mistake there, though. It has to do that there's no redemption without shedding of blood, and that there's only one mediator between men and God, the man Christ Jesus. Don't know him, don't worship him. No matter how high that mountain was you climb, or how long it took you to get to the peak, the other side of that peak is hell. No way to turn except through Christ. Another one we talked about was no one can know for sure if they're going to heaven. And they like that. Because our Lord talked about those that said they, they, would, they would compass the earth around about to make one proselyte, to make one convert to their religion. And he also spoke about these same people that says they won't enter in and they won't let anybody else enter in. And so they're going to say that you've got to keep doing. You've got to keep doing. You've got to keep praying. You've got to keep coming. You've got to keep giving. You've got to keep doing, doing, doing. And then when you die, you will find out if you made it to heaven or not. It's the religion of the world. You may obtain, but you'll never know till you die. Isn't that terrible? 
Our Lord never taught that. John didn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. It says we know him. And we had a great lesson there. Another little expression we talked about was, is one thing I don't talk about is religion. You know why people hang on to their own religion? is because they don't know anything about religion, period. That's why you can set religion up as a barrier to going to church, as a barrier to anything. And we've even heard of a case just recently where religion was set up, well, if you're going to go to that church, well, then you might as well just count me out. We're going to get divorced. That's the end of our family. And I want to tell you something. This very thing happened in my own family. My parents were married for over 20 years. And don't ask me if they had any children that lived, because they did. But anyhow, when I became interested in going to school, to Bob Jones, to study to be a preacher, because this is so weird in our family, and this was a little intent I had in my heart and mind, that my father was so infuriated with my mother even sending a couple dollars to that university, that he hauls off and goes for a divorce. That's it. That's the only, that's the, that's the, the end of the, the road for him. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. And my mother wasn't a mean person to him. It was just that he was looking, looking for something and needing an excuse, and that was it. See, he was Catholic. My mother was nothing, and I was nothing, and Bob Jones is nothing. They have 99 denominations there, and everybody gets along beautiful. But it was just the idea. Fool's religion, and I will leave you. And it's so silly. Because nobody wants, those people that talk like that don't want to take time to examine their own hearts and their own lives and their own eternity. Some people will. And of course, there's where this perfect hatred comes out that's taught in the scriptures. And Dixie knows something about that. The perfect hatred coming to Christ. The Bible describes it as hating your mother, your father, your sisters, your brothers, your in-laws, your children. I'll go you one further than that. You hate yourself. You hate that heart from within that just wants to sin. You hate the heart that transmits the thoughts of sin to your mind, of vanity, of lust, of everything else that the scriptures describe as unrighteousness. That old heart feeds the mind. And you become to despise and hate yourself. And when you're at the feet of Christ begging for mercy, you're there with a heart that's pleading against itself. You've taken God's side. You've taken God's word against yourself. The only witness that you have is you. Some people have a beautiful exterior that you would never know. You would never know a thing about the thoughts and intents of their heart. God does, though, see. We have never, ever fooled God. He knows the heart of every man. 
But the miracle of it all is the fact when the Lord lets a man see the corruption of his own heart. See, this is unnatural. Nobody does this of their own. You can walk down through a prison corridor and ask one after the other on either side of the alley, what are you in here for? And nine out of ten of them will tell you that they were framed. They were framed. They're not as bad as they're supposed to be. When God gets through dealing with a sinner, and that sinner's practically at the end of his way, though he doesn't know where he is. But when he gets to this point, he doesn't care what he is or where he's been from. He feels and knows a guilt that is higher than any mountain that they've ever climbed. It's insurpassable in their own heart and mind, and you wonder why God would ever, ever even deal with a sinner so vile and wicked as ourselves. And when he delivers that sinner and removes that mountain of guilt and that burden such a wonderful freedom. That's why everybody who ever gets delivered knows when they got delivered. You may not want to admit it even to yourself. You may go for weeks and for months still trying to get back under the burden, but you can't. And some like myself wanted to erase this business of having a date or having a day. So I blanked it from my mind. I didn't even want to remember the month. I didn't want to remember the week. I didn't want to remember anything like that for fear that this would be something I would have to brag about or that I would brag about. So to tell you the truth, I did forget the day. I did forget, I didn't forget the week because I knew Dixie's birthday was in it. It was uh, um, October 29th. And there was Dixie's birthday and I knew that it was in the same week that Dixie had a birthday and I do remember the year it happened to be 1968. I tried to erase all of that. I couldn't. I know because I was there. I was there when the Lord revealed himself to my heart. And I never thought he would. Time was beginning to become a big factor in my life. I was getting older. I was getting so old and I was getting harder. I knew that my heart was hardened to the things of the world and hardened to the things of God's word, hardened to messages. I thought this was about the end of the trail. And it must have been, because that's when God delivered me and started a whole new highway of rejoicing, looking for him to come again, looking for those promises, realizing that what faith is is a reality to the human heart. That's not an invisible thing. It's the invisible things of God, but they are a reality to our own heart. And then last week we talked about there are too many hypocrites in the church, so that's why I don't come. And we had talked about even in our Lord's disciples, there was one in twelve. If you had a, a congregation of twenty-four, there's a very good chance you might have two. Or you can have more, or you could have had less, but it's always been and it always will be. Even some of Paul's closest friends, some of his great close bosom buddies, a fellow named Demas, left him after a while. Then there was a guy named Alexander. And there were several others in the scriptures that were great so-called followers of the word and believers. But their leaving only shows 
that it was a pretense. You say, well, they fell from grace? No, they didn't fall from grace. God's people don't fall from grace. God preserves every one of his people. They don't fall. If somebody falls, it shows they've never been saved. It's simple as that. That's a simple equation. No matter how many years a person might profess, I want to tell you something. Within that heart, during all those years, they know that they're not saved. But they keep going on and on and on pretending. And they're pretending to this degree that maybe they were, and maybe they just didn't realize it, and maybe, maybe... I want to tell you, in real salvation, there's no maybe. You know, because you've been there. Now, <clears throat> today's lesson, we only have five minutes left for it, so we're going to hardly get a start, but we're going to read the scriptures. Remember last week when we finished up, we were talking about several things that Paul kept telling you about, don't be ignorant of. He used that expression so many times that I think it caught on, and even Peter used it over there once. And we, we might get to Peter's today, too. We're just going to read them and talk briefly about them. But over in 1 Thessalonians 4.13... First Thessalonians 4.13. When, uh, whenever anybody even says 1 Thessalonians, immediately your heart must jump because you know that this is where the Lord describes his coming again to take his people out. Now, it seems like about 30 years ago, 20 to 30 years ago, the second coming of our Lord was a very popular theme amongst so-called fundamentalists. Well, it's not anymore. For some reason, it has fallen off that you rarely ever hear anybody talking about our Lord coming back again and the great change that's going to be made with people that are left here as believers. And then uh, one of the reasons is, is that people think that uh, the Lord's only going to come back in judgment. Or the Lord's going to come back at the end of the tribulation because the church must go through the tribulation. They're no better than anybody else and they must go through the tribulation. So this very passage that we're reading here has been extended and put into the tribulation by many, many religious people. It has nothing to do with the tribulation. It has nothing to do whatsoever with it. And I want to show you why. In the first place, when our Lord was describing the tribulation, he said there has never been a time upon earth when things were so horrible and there never will, and that time will never come when it will be as horrible as it is in the tribulation. Well, you know there's been a lot of terrible times upon earth. Already there's been many, many terrible times. And one of the most terrible times for a country happened to be in Egypt when the Lord was smiting that country with ten different plagues. That was terrible times for those people. And our Lord says this tribulation time is going to be worse than that. It's going to be the worst time the world has ever known. Well, when we talk about 1 Thessalonians and Paul giving us this section from verse 13 down through 18, I love to include verse 11. It's 1 Thessalonians 4, and we'll start with verse 11. And I want you to think in your mind and reason with me, how could anybody write this particular verse if somebody was in the middle of a tribulation. Now let's read it. And that you study to be quiet 
and do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. And that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. Does that sound like the midst of the tribulation? Does that sound like a people running and fleeing and hiding in caves and in mountains with the Antichrist and all of his power and all of his troops to hunt you down? You know, the Apostle Paul was a type of Antichrist before he was saved. He was hunting down Christians. He'd go anywhere. You know, people don't walk anywhere today. They ride cars. I live a short distance from my work, but I use a bicycle, I ride. You know, Paul didn't mind walking several hundred miles to track down a Christian and family. Walk. Heat of the day, cold at night, tiresome on the legs, dangers along the road, being robbed, mugged. They did it then, too. He'd do anything to go get a Christian. Antichrist will too. And Paul says, hey, I want you to study to be quiet. And I want you to do your own business and to work with your own hands and be a good citizen. Now let's start with verse 13. And this is probably as far as we get today when we read the rest of this chapter. But Paul is trying to impress upon even God's people. This book was written to God's people. But he's saying, I don't want you to be ignorant. See, ignorance is the big thing in this world that's taken more people to hell probably than anything else. Ignorance. A little knowledge is a great help, especially if it's in God's Word. A little wrong knowledge is a tremendous detriment. But he says, but I would not have you to be ignorant brethren. There's love in that word, brethren. Concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Now, people cry and moan and groan when somebody dies. I guess that's the normal human heart. But you don't keep it up. You don't keep running to the graveside. You don't keep moaning and groaning and wish. He says, I don't want you to sorrow as others, which have no hope. They haven't anything. A person that dies in Christ has it all. He's the one that should be crying for the people that are left. For the beloved relatives and the children and the grandchildren and those in the congregation who are left, they're left in that world that our Lord talks about that hates them. But generally the sorrowing is the other way. When a person is happy with the Lord, they're still crying, wish they hadn't died. For if we believe, verse 14, that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. How does he bring them with him? The souls. The souls have departed to be with Christ. Souls, believe it or not, in the spiritual world, in this world that we cannot look into, have, have bodies just exactly like we do. They fit a body. He's going to bring them with him. That's something. I can't picture it. I can't see. I never saw a soul. But he's going to bring them with him. I don't know how they're coming. I can't imagine how, how they get along with each other without a body. 
but they have the shape of a body because they fit in a body. For this we say unto you, verse 15, by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Or we won't leave them behind the bodies because our bodies are going to be changed, see? And he's taught this to these people before, but they couldn't get it. They didn't get the drift. He's already told them that when the Lord comes back, your body's going to be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, it's going to be changed from a body that was once run and with blood. It's going to be now run by God's Spirit. You have no more need of blood. It's going to be a body of flesh and bone. It's called a spiritual body, not a spirit body. It's a spiritual body. So now he goes into the explanation. He says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. Now those things we don't know about right now. We don't know how it's going to sound, what the shout is. This is spiritual, and it's going to happen up there. I don't think I'm going to hear a trumpet down here or any voice. This is the signal in heaven to let's get going. We're going down. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Mir miraculous, you see. This is beyond science fiction. The graves are going to open and resurrected bodies are going to pop out. How that is, I don't know. They're going to rise. They're not going to be decayed pieces of bone and skull and fragments of rat. Uh-uh. I'm talking about resurrected bodies that only the creator could create period he's bringing souls with him the bodies will be raised and they're going to be raised in perfection the lord himself shall descend from heaven all the way from heaven with a shout the voice of the archangel the trump of god and the dead in christ shall rise first now, there's an old joke about that. They've got to rise first because they've got six feet further to travel. That's just an old joke. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. There's going to be a change in that living body. Those that are living are going to be caught up. They're going to be changed to meet the Lord in the air. And I want you to notice also, it says, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, with those that have died in Christ. So their bodies and our bodies will be compatible. They'll have the same bodies coming out of the grave that we have being changed without dying. We're going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It says nothing about the Lord touching the ground. He doesn't come to the ground at this time. He only comes to take his people out before the tribulation time hits this earth. And it says, And so shall we ever be with the Lord, whether he goes back to heaven, whether he comes back to earth, whether he goes anywhere, we will be with the Lord. And what's the reason for this? The next verse tells us. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words the Lord's coming back you're going to have a new body and those that have died before you 
are just as much at peace, even more so than you are, though you don't know it. Their bodies will be changed. And the fact that they died and were buried and have decayed does not dismiss their chances of having a new body. Their bodies will rise first. And they'll have new bodies also. See, Scripture's beautiful. And one thing I want to tell you, though, about this second coming is that it's within our lifetime. It never was within anybody else's lifetime up to 50 years ago. Though they had the same scriptures. But all things were not ready. Time was not completed. The time of the Gentiles was not as yet near the end. But it is now. It is now according to God's timetable and according to God's word. He says you can't tell the day, but you can kind of tell the season. You can just feel the season. You can look at Israel. This is our time clock. Look at the nation of Israel. How long have they been a nation? It says they're going to be a nation for a generation and then the Lord's going to come back. And he's saving people right now. That's one of the greatest things to point to his soon coming. He is gleaning. He's getting the last of the glean, the last of the crop. And we're in that gleaning right here in our own congregation. It's wonderful. So call upon him. He's delivering people right now. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank thee for thy goodness, mercy to us, our place of worship, this people whom thou hast given us to love and to preach to. We ask that thou would have blessed this service and that thou would bless the service to follow. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.